Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Room and Room podcasts. Once again, really appreciate you taking time to join us on our journey of discussing all things to do with ruminant nutrition. Hey, so this is part three of a three-part series exploring the topic of where are my missing milk solids. So far, if you've tuned into the previous two podcasts as part of this three-part series, you'll know that we've already been discussing why spring-calved pasture-fed cows might be firstly slow to reach uh, peak milk solids production and why indeed a herd may not peak very well after spring calving. And that was the topic in our first of this three-part series of episodes. In our second Where Are My Missing Milk Solids podcast, we covered off some of the reasons why cows crash off peak milk solids production during late spring and summer. And the focus of that second podcast in the series was on some of the cow-based reasons for that fast crash or post-peak decline, as well as the final part of part two, we talked about some of the risk factors around heat stress, humidity stress, and the contribution of that to post-peak milk solids decline. In this third episode of Where Am I Missing Milk Solids, we're going to finish up this discussion by working through some of the challenges around pasture quality in late spring and early summer and where a drop in grass quality, particularly of ryegrass, perennial ryegrass quality, why that's a big contributor to our missing milk solids as we head closer to Christmas with our spring calf cows here in our New Zealand dairy-based systems. So with our ryegrass-based systems here in New Zealand and our post-peak decline, we're firstly going to have to kick off by acknowledging that pasture-based systems most often crash off peak in terms of peak milk solids supply simply if we have issues around pasture supply versus the demand for that pasture by our cows. Yes, it's feed budgeting again, and I I really apologise from the basic aspect of that, but clearly there's not a lot of point us going into talking about some of the intricacies, the finer details of grass quality when we have a straight out issue of not enough pasture versus what the cows need, or the topic that we are going to look at if we inadvertently run a surplus of pasture compared to what the cows need and then the corresponding issues around grass quality. So we'll talk about firstly the point around the supply and demand of pasture. Then at the uh, later stages of this podcast, we'll move into the aspects around different pasture species and how that may influence uh, our post-peak decline. And then we'll finish up with a, a brief topic around the role in some situations for summer crops, forage crops, um, or taken uh, as conserved feeds such as maize to manipulate our post-peak decline. So the first point we'll cover off on for this new podcast is, of course, uh, yes, that feed budget, but quite uh, sincerely, simply the demand for pasture by cows post-peak, coming off peak production, and trying to balance that up with the supply of pasture for the cows across the milking platform. So clearly the good old feed budget, boring as it is, is an important one because cows that aren't being fed to appetite clearly will drop off peak more quickly than cows that are being more fully fed. So yeah, that's a given, hey? And to be fair, in many parts of New Zealand, Getting this balance between pasture supply or what's been grown every day across the farm versus what's been required by the herd can be quite variable through this critical mid to late spring period. So we're thinking through October and through into November. Now, the pasture supply can bounce around a lot and catch us out potentially when we're trying to work out our daily or weekly pasture supply um, predictions versus the demands by the herd. 
And of course, that depends on how you like to calculate out your supply versus demand. And perhaps using the very straightforward approach of just simply deciding what your daily kilograms dry matter of pasture demand of the herd is on a per hectare basis. So your herd might have, for example, demand for 50 kilograms of pasture per hectare per day across the whole milking platform versus what you're growing. And in October, depending on where in New Zealand you are, you may be growing as much as 90 kilograms of dry matter of pasture per hectare per day, or if you're having issues of ongoing frosts further south, you might only be growing 40 uh, kilograms of dry matter of pasture grown per hectare per day. So yeah, October and November, it can be quite a changeable time of year for pasture growth. Firstly, I guess for those of us in the cooler regions of New Zealand, you know, perhaps um, parts of the South Island where, where we're based, and Obviously, through October particularly, and this this year, 2022, is certainly no different in that this year we've had quite a variation in pasture growth rates. We've had a few warmer days that pushes up our daily pasture growth rates perhaps up to 70 or 80 a day, but intertwined with the odd late frost that we've been experiencing through October this year, and that will obviously drop our pasture growth rates back. So no such thing as a stable feed base by any means. So we do need to keep an eye on the average pasture cover through this time, and hopefully you're generating um, with weekly farm walks or gathering data with a CDAX or whatever to generate our trusty old pasture wedge that uh, will tell us whether we're needing to maybe drip feed in a little bit of supplementary feed uh, if our demand line on our pasture wedge has been left behind and our, our pasture wedge is dipping under our demand line. Or conversely, if we are having too much feed, too much pasture grown versus our demand, and we'll talk about some of the challenges when we have too much pasture growing relative to what the herd needs, and therefore increasing the risk that we'll lose control of pasture quality if we allow a big surplus of pasture uh, to build in front of us. So... We've mentioned before the importance of fully feeding our cows through that post-peak period, not only to maintain that milk solids peak for as long as we can, but when we're talking about the topic of post-peak decline, of course we need to overlay the issue around reproductive performance. And as we said in the, uh, the second podcast in the series, we will be having some real deep diving into some of the reproductive challenges and opportunities on pastures. But if we have herds that have a very abrupt post-peak decline, we're always starting to look a little bit sideways at things such as non-return rates, and we spoke of this in the second podcast. Rapid post-peak declines tend to mean we've had a, uh, not enough feed on offer, perhaps a pasture quality problem, and that can uh, falsely elevate our non-return rates and make it look like our pastures are supporting really good mating performance, when in fact the reverse is true and we've got a high non-return rate because our mated cows have gone anestrous again and they are not cycling because they've gone anestrous rather than actually being in calf. So Yes, we will have enough to talk about around those topics in future reproductive performance-based podcasts, so watch out for those. So aside from feed budgeting, yes, and that supply versus demand on a daily or weekly basis looking at your feed wedge, our second topic around managing um, pastures to try and reduce the extent and rate of post-peak milk solids production is, of course, the boring side around pasture management. Now, this is only a, a single podcast, and of course, pasture management is quite a big topic. And as well as that, each and every one of you will have your own views on managing pasture for post-peak decline to, you know, look into where are missing milk solids and trying to preserve milk production post-peak. And as well as own your own opinions on this, clearly there's never a prescriptive kind of join the dots approach to pasture management because every farm, uh, every block within a farm and even every paddock of pasture will be different from the next. So there's not a prescriptive approach, but we'll just cover a few generic points to illustrate how important grazing management can be when we're looking to maintain 
good quality across our ryegrass dominant pastures and therefore uh, to reduce the extent of post-peak decline of milk solids production. So yeah, disclaimer here, it's a big topic, it's not prescriptive and we're only just going to kind of scratch the surface on this topic today. Uh, So we're going to run through the basics of some aspects around pasture management and then towards the end of this podcast we'll look at some longer term options, um, pasture species and whatnot that we can look to invest in the longer term to slow down that crazy fast rate of um, post-peak decline. New Zealand listeners, just just um, hang on for a minute because we're just going to scene set for our non-New Zealand listeners around this topic, uh, given we've picked up a lot of overseas listeners and we do welcome you to our discussions around pasture-based dairying in New Zealand. For overseas listeners, just to scene set that our New Zealand past, pasture-based systems are almost exclusively based around perennial ryegrasses combined with companion species, which typically are a range of different uh, types of white clovers, you know, medium to large leaf types of white clovers. And this works for almost all parts of the year as a very efficient pasture feed system for almost all of our dairy uh, businesses. That said, some regions of New Zealand are beginning to explore the fit for alternative grass species such as coxfoots, tall fescues, uh, in some hotter regions of New Zealand where sometimes our perennial ryegrasses do struggle due to increasingly unpredictable pasture growth seasons, particularly through the summer, and as well as that, the effects of heat stress on perennial ryegrasses that we touched on briefly in our last podcast. But for sure, this aspect around grazing management we're going to cover briefly now relates to a perennial ryegrass and white clover based system that still does form the the predominant feed base for most of our New Zealand grazing herds. So look, perennial ryegrass systems do work well for us given the uh, temperate climate of New Zealand, with ryegrasses providing a heap of lovely leafy, green, high quality forage during Uh, the autumn, winter and early spring months particularly. However, with spring calving uh, in New Zealand occurring through July and August typically, as we head later into spring, perhaps October and into November, our ryegrass plants start to think about flowering through the spring period. And depending on how we manage our ryegrass-based pastures, If we are a little bit lax or um, not keeping on top of our grazing pressure through this period of time, our ryegrasses will start to elongate through the pseudostem, through to developing a true stem with flowering. And if we don't keep on top of the seed production, we will have ryegrasses that are in full seed production and In New Zealand, we call this all sorts of things. Some are probably too colourful to repeat, but let's just say we'll talk about it. Going reproductive as ryegrasses, whatever you want to call it. Essentially, this reproductive development by the ryegrass is obviously good for the ryegrass if you're a ryegrass, because obviously that ryegrass plant then sets out to perpetuate and to reproduce and carry on its genetics into the next generation. So that's kind of nice for the ryegrass plant. However... On behalf of our cows who are grazing these ryegrass plants, clearly if we don't keep on top of this reproductive development, we end up with a range of issues um, that can contribute to a more rapid drop-off peak milk solids production. So our aim of pasture management on behalf of our cows through the spring and early summer period is to keep on top of this reproductive development and to aim to maintain our ryegrass pasture swards in as leafy a state as possible. And it's easy to say this, and often it's harder to keep this pasture quality where it needs to be, particularly through October and November, as we mentioned earlier, was that matching supply from pasture and demand can be difficult when uh, pasture growth rates are uh, up and down with changeable weather through October and even into November. So why do we want to keep on top of this reproductive development? Why do we want to keep ryegrass as leafy as we can, can? Well, pretty obvious. First up is grass quality. So when our ryegrasses start to elongate uh, in mid to late spring, 
that ryegrass is starting to elongate the pseudo-stem and then up to true stem, and up comes a seed head. Now, from the ryegrass plant's point of view, this takes a lot of effort and energy to produce this reproductive plant parts, and this will come at the expense of things such as leaf production. So the plant's so busy pushing up reproductive development, there's not so much leaf produced, and it takes a lot of root energy reserves as well. So the ryegrass plant has to work pretty hard on this. End game of this, if we don't manage this pasture, is that we end up with this taller reproductive plant parts of our ryegrass waving in the wind, less leaf growing, and overall the feed quality of this ryegrass plant is absolutely abysmal. It crashes out. Our energy content, megajoules of metabolizable energy, is much lower. Our fibre components of the ryegrass plant, measured as NDF, uh, ADF and lignin, will greatly increase, reducing that quality. And quite often with reproductive plant parts dominating the whole plant and not so much leaf, our crude protein values will crash as well. So all of these quality aspects contribute to, of course, our post-peak decline and results in quite a significant crash of peak where, as we've mentioned in the previous two podcasts in this series, instead of having a nice gentle 2 to 3% drop in milk solids production off peak every month, during October through to November, the first month post-peak, some farms, particularly in the warmer regions of New Zealand where this loss of grass quality is more profound than further south, where it's cooler, we can see drops instead of 2 to 3% per month of up to 10 to 15% per month. And then once we get through this ryegrass heading period, we get more like 4 to 6% drop per month. But that first month post-peak decline can be very dramatic because of ryegrass quality crashing as the ryegrass goes reproductive. Now the second point apart from straight ryegrass quality is that if we get seed um, heads set on the plant, that ryegrass not only is poor quality, but actually it's not very tasty for the cow wanting to eat that. She'd far rather eat a leafy, nice-tasting leaf uh, to the ryegrass plant. And as well, the girls, by the very nature of how cows graze grass, which which is wrapping their tongues around and, and tearing that off, is obviously... The ryegrass, when it's heading, is very lignified and it's difficult for cows to effectively tear off that reproductive plant part on the ryegrass. So she's less efficient with with smaller bites or mouthfuls of feed per bite that she takes. And we'll talk more about that point shortly. The third part around why we don't like taller ryegrass plants with full-on seed heads is that that scraggly tall seed head results if we don't remove it, and reduced tillering by that ryegrass plant, which means without the daughter tillers being produced at the base of the plant, we have overall reduced ryegrass density in that sward. With those wide open gaps between individual ryegrass plants, that's not ideal because unless those gaps are filled with desirable plant species, specifically clovers, there's lots of open space that allows things like summer grasses, broadleaf weed species, poa, all those species we do not want in our ryegrass white clover uh, swords. So yeah, open, uh, low tiller density ryegrass pastures are not really what we want. Now because of these three rather negative aspects around allowing our ryegrasses to go reproductive, you know, poor quality, hard harvest and uh, undesirable species getting in underneath, our clear aim through this ryegrass reproductive period, so late spring into, into early summer, is of course to keep seed head production minimised by using the cows themselves or, as required, by mowing or topping or taking uh, surplus uh, you know, higher pasture masses out as baleage or silage so that we can remove that seed head or prevent it from forming in the first place therefore encouraging better overall ryegrass feed quality because we get more leaf growing back and that leaf is good quality. It's in a nicer, tastier state for the girls to want to eat those. And of course, finally encouraging the ryegrass plant itself 
to by removing that reproductive development for the plant to develop more daughter tillers instead of allowing the ryegrass plants to waste all the energy chucking up full-on seed heads. So yeah, that's the plan of course and usually we can achieve the better quality ryegrass plant by keeping on top of the reproductive plant development simply by stocking pressure and as we said before Otherwise, coming in with a mower to minimise ryegrass seedhead production and keeping it in a nice leafy vegetative state. So pasture management to minimise post-peak decline in milk solids. Yep, we've got to keep these ryegrasses under control. And some of the topics we're going to briefly skim through now are pretty basic. And if this part's a bit boring for you seasoned campaigners who are already good pasture managers, hey, just skip through this. We won't take it personally if you don't listen into this part. But for those of you who want to hang in there with this topic, welcome. And we hope you find this part a little bit useful. Let's list this out in terms of things around pasture management to improve ryegrass quality. The first aspect around pasture management to keep on top of the quality of spring ryegrasses is of course very much about grazing pressure within our rotationally grazed system. And grazing pressure is very much about ideally grazing our ryegrass pastures somewhere between a total pasture mass, this is to dirt level, of no higher than 2800 kilograms dry matter of pre-grazing pasture mass and grazing down to a post-grazing residual of usually no lower than about 1,500 or 1,550 kilograms of dry matter per hectare. Now, if we aim to try and keep our late spring and early summer pastures being grazed somewhere between 15 to 2,800, the ryegrass pastures are more likely to behave themselves uh, not to uh, necessarily go reproductive as overtly as if we're letting pasture covers getting higher than that and therefore to retain acceptable feed quality. When we're talking about 2800 grazed to 1500 as the ideal pre and post grazing mass, that's to aim to maintain grass quality. Uh, typically we're talking at 2800 or 26 to 2800 being keeping in that three leaf phase which is ideal for the plant and by not letting pastures get higher than 2800 we're talking about uh, trying to keep in that three leaf phase and we're going to grow and utilize as much feed as we can versus if you're getting to 3000 or 3200 kilograms dry matter per hectare pre-grazing mass potentially you're starting to waste a lot of feed with death and decay of the lower leaves on the ryegrass plant. So that's the sweet spot we're trying to chase. And if you think about it, we're actually talking about cows removing perhaps 1,300 kilograms dry matter per hectare of available pasture. So that's 2,800, take away 15. And that's the amount between your pre and post grazing masses. The reason we're going into this sort of detail is that if you're growing, say, 50 kilograms of dry matter grown per hectare per day, by difference, that means that we can work out that you're going to be on around about a 26-day grazing round. So in other words, if you leave 1,500 kilograms of dry matter per hectare behind in a paddock today and you're expecting to grow 50 kilograms of dry matter per hectare per day, that means you'll be back in, hopefully to 2800 pre-grazing mass again in about 26 days time. And that's how, I guess, that's one example of how to work out a rotation length in the ideal world. Obviously, this is just for example purposes only. If, on the other hand, you've decided on a 26-day grazing round, and in fact you've had a burst of nice warm weather, there's plenty of moisture in the ground, and you end up growing more than 50 kilograms dry matter per hectare per day with your pasture, then obviously in 26 days' time, your pre-grazing mass is going to be a lot higher than 28 kilograms of dry matter per hectare in front of the cows. Now, during times of year such as autumn, when you don't have a lot of ryegrass seeded, this is less important because if your pasture masses are getting a bit higher, the cows won't mind so much because it's getting taller and you're losing some efficiency, but it's still going to be pretty leafy. On the other hand, if we've got these higher growth rates than what you're expecting and our pre-grazing pastures get really tall, 3,000, 3,200 kilograms dry matter per hectare in front of the cows, 
clearly that's giving ryegrasses every opportunity to continue to run through to ryegrass seed head at that higher pasture grazing mass. And we end up with that raft of negatives we spoke of before, things like the quality will be going off, the shading means that your clovers are going to be in the dark, so to speak, and we'll come back to this point and you'll lose your clovers out of the sward and we're wasting a lot of the pasture you're growing. So if, through weekly farm walks, you discover that instead of growing 50 a day for the last week, perhaps you're growing 70, clearly we're growing more pasture than what your herd needs. Now, with all this extra pasture starting to grow in front of you, it's not about simply speeding up your grazing rotation, is it? Because you think about it, say if you try to speed up your grazing rotation, so in other words, you start uh, giving cows more area per day to try and catch up with that grass that's growing in front of them, and <laughs> all you're going to end up doing is that you'll simply end up leaving behind more with your post-grazing residuals. If we're targeting 1,500 kilograms dry matter per hectare as your post-grazing residuals to get good quality regrowth for the next grazing round, if you start running ahead, giving the cows more and more area, clearly the post-grazing residual will start to lift. That thatch and poor quality feed starts to get higher and higher so that when the cows come back again next time, you're going to have more likely poor quality feed and even more seed head because you haven't eaten down the post-grazing residual as low as you need to be to be getting that 15 or 15.50 residual. So yeah, <laughs> speeding up round length to chase more and more feed in front of you if you have a genuine surplus of pasture when your pasture growth rates are higher than your herd demand is not going to work. If we don't do anything and your pasture feed quality is turning ugly at the top end of your pasture uh, wedge, so you're instead of going into 2,800, you're going into 3,000 or more, that is a real key risk for ending up with a much faster and extensive post-peak decline by your milking cows. When we have high pasture growth rates that are outrunning herd demand, we need to step in and do some other things because of you know, poor pasture quality, shading your clovers, uh, wasting feed growing and all that sort of thing. If you uh, have got, for example, 50 kilograms dry matter per hectare per day demand by the cows and you're growing 70, what you're going to have to do is not speed your round up. You're going to have to take some other actions or we're going to end up with this problem of tall ryegrass dominant pastures. So this moves us into the second aspect around managing spring and early summer pasture to stop or reduce the risk of our ryegrasses from throwing seed head. And this is about the successful removal of genuine pasture surpluses from the grazing system. Now, the key principles of, remember, keeping on top of a pasture surplus is to keep on top of ryegrass quality. And typically when you've done your weekly farm walk and you're identifying those top high yielding pastures at the top end of your pasture wedge is us doing something about those uh, paddocks at the top of your pasture wedge. Most typically, depending on the weather, depending on contractor availability or whether you've got your own gear, the easiest approach to this is, of course, to take some of your top yielding paddocks, the, the ones that are perhaps over 3,000 cover, and take them as baleage. Now, I know you'll argue, but it's going to be seedy and poor quality baleage. Well, yes, it is. But someone somewhere in the system is going to eat that. It might be that you actually stash those bales uh, for drying off, poorer feed quality. But remembering that the aim here is not to value that baleage as a genuine useful feed, but rather to say what we're doing is we're removing that tall pasture from um, from your paddocks so that you're more likely to get some better energy and protein dense regrowth once that tall pasture is harvested and quite often depending on if conditions are suitable a little bit of nitrogen fertilizer applied if conditions permit can slightly improve that post uh, cutting for baleage pasture quality so we're taking baleage off not to value what it is in the bale but rather to get rid of it and get some good quality feed coming back into the system that will help feed cows well and reduce the extent and rate of post-peak milk solids decline. Now if baleage 
isn't an option. It might be the weather. It might be that uh, your wedge is a strange shape and uh, you've got a dip in the middle of it. In other words, you've got a bit of a, a feed deficit coming, yet you, you've got those tall paddocks at the top end as well of your wedge. Then it may be that you do end up having to eat uh, those paddocks at the top of the pasture wedge. And at the same time, you might have summer crop paddocks coming out. And having summer crop paddocks coming out of the grazing round will overall increase your stocking density, or otherwise, another way of saying that is it will increase your daily uh, demand for pasture by uh, having a lesser area of pasture in the round, and therefore you've increased the stocking rate and the pasture demand on the balance areas of the pasture. So that's another way to get on top of those top paddocks, and it might be that your 12-hour graze, that the cows have those top paddocks maybe for a night feed so they're chewing a little bit harder through that poorer quality feed but then you're balancing it with good quality pasture for their day feed. A third discussion point around pasture management is of course the one that comes up time and time again around um, topping pasture like mowing it, slashing it for parts of Australian uh, listeners if you're listening from over the ditch and yeah, this is an age-old discussion point that quite often is quite controversial as a way to manage pasture cover uh, itself, if your pasture covers are getting a little bit high. And certainly, I know, particularly this year when diesel prices are horribly, horribly expensive here in New Zealand and I suspect elsewhere in dairying regions around the world, that we have this discussion around rather than putting a pasture surplus or the top of your pasture wedge into a bale as baleage, but rather we'll kind of top our way out. In other words, rather than baling it, we'll top it and make the cows eat it to get rid of that small surplus. Ah, oh, yeah, well, that's it's going to be a, a topic that probably does need discussion, and we'll talk about that now. In fact, pasture topping, it's all, it's almost worth a, a whole podcast on its own, given that there's a huge range to top um, and discussions out there around whether we should top or not. This podcast, look, we're not going to make any firm recommendations about whether you should top, and if so, whether you should top in front of the cows, in other words, topping the grass that the cows are going into today, or behind the cows, which is topping the pasture once the cows have already grazed it. And uh, I suspect the controversial nature of this topic, we're probably going to stir up all sorts of social media debate about this. So we're not going to state too much here, but rather just a gen in a generic sense, kind of talk about some of the pros and cons of either topping in front or behind. And I hope this approach to the topic's okay, because I know, um, yeah, that topping isn't for everyone. So I guess that's a disclaimer. We're not suggesting that you top, but we're just acknowledging that a lot of, uh, a lot of you do. And also, of course, with the um, numbers of listeners that we now have listening in, that there is a huge wealth of opinion amongst all of you out there about topping. So, well, from taking a pros and cons approach to it, let's first talk about topping in front and, and we'll leave the diesel price and, and labour and everything out of this. But topping in front, yeah, there are some, some good advantages to topping in front, particularly, and this is if it were earlier in the spring before ryegrasses um, start to think about going reproductive and it could be that you've just got lovely leafy to the to the base ryegrass sward or maybe just a little bit of seed head coming up that you can feel through the pseudo stem at the base of the ryegrass plant. Topping in front when you've got leafy vegetative ryegrass, some of the advantages here that, that all of you will no doubt have um, debated yourselves is that in theory I guess the cow's don't have to work as hard to select and tear off grass during eating. They just kind of just shove a lot on, on in. If the weather's warming up a bit and it's not raining, and depending on when you top the pasture versus when the cows go into it, you might even get a bit of a wilt happening, you know, so that the dry matter percent of the grass goes up maybe a couple of percent or two or three or four percent, meaning the cows don't have to eat as much wet material as in as much water per mouthful of feed. But yeah, it depends if it's raining or not, hey. Topping in front, like all topping approaches, I guess the key benefits is that we're looking for good quality regrowth and potential tillering by the ryegrasses during the next time that you come back into that paddock. And of course, whether you stop seed head or minimise seed head production depends on whether you manage to top that emerging seed head or not. Uh, and, and that's based on timing versus when your ryegrasses start to head. 
Of course, topping in front usually means that uh, if the quality of the ryegrass is really good, the cows are quite good at vacuuming up all that cut grass off the ground. So we're not going to get a lot of dead and dying material left behind, hopefully. And that means that dead and dying material shouldn't increase risk of facial eczema. Hold that thought, we'll come back to it. You know, facial eczema usually doesn't start to become a problem until at least sort of that post-Christmas period. So thatch lying around, so long as it's eaten by the cows, shouldn't increase risk of uh, facial eczema really until we get into the eczema season. And of course, the final positive thing about topping in front is I guess that you're not splattering the old cow poo all over you, your tractor, your mower, and, and that's a positive benefit too. But we've got to have a balanced discussion around topping in front, and I guess some of the not-so-good stuff about topping in front is, of course, if we're talking about late spring, early summer, and you've already got a lot of ryegrass reproductive development present, and we top the whole paddock in front of cows, the cows won't be as able to sift their way through and pick what they'd like. Instead, the cows will have to eat the whole lot. Stemmy stuff, seed head, uh, the clover that's there, everything. They're not going to be able to select out ryegrass, leaf and clover amongst the stuff that she'd normally try and, and grab amongst the seed head because remembering she doesn't like the seed head. So if the ryegrass quality is really too nasty by the time you're mowing in front, chances are you could inadvertently increase the risk of a more rapid and extensive post-peak decline in milk solids by forcing the cows to eat everything in front of her. But remembering this is if the ryegrass is already turned to really nasty quality. Vegetative leafy ryegrass in front, your chances are you may minimise the rate of post-peak decline because the cows are easily harvesting lots of good quality feed. So topping in front can either improve or will reduce the risk of post-peak decline but if the ryegrass is already very poor you may accelerate the extent of post-peak decline so it depends what the grass is like when you choose to top in front. How about post-graze topping? So again if we look at the pros and cons of this post-graze um, topping and that's essentially that we let our cows have a nice pick through the pasture and they take out they select out the stuff they really like and they'll go, ryegrass seeded, don't really like that. And so when you go and have a look in the paddock, you'll see they've grazed to quite low post-grazing residuals, the good stuff, and they've left the poorer quality stuff. You then start up the tractor and mower, uh, and you post-graze top all of those stemmy upright ryegrass plants that the cows have avoided. The positives around this is that the cows aren't being forced to eat all the ryegrass stuff because they've been able to pick through the nice stuff and in turn they've left the stemmier stuff behind and quite often when you look at the post-grazing residuals the stemmy stuff they've left behind as we mentioned before in some cases the cows will take a good bite at the stemmy stuff if, if particularly if you're trying to push them to eat down a bit but because the grass snaps off where it's got very lignified and cutty, they can't get a decent mouthful down to ground level. It's not actually the cow's fault. She just can't effectively harvest it when she's wrapping the tongue and tearing that off just because it won't break cleanly off further down the plant. Of course, the benefits to topping behind the cows, I guess, is that, you know, will certainly improve the quality of the regrowth in the same manner that topping in front. So it's a good benefit. And we're trying to tidy up those stemmy, thatchy areas before we come back around again. And again, that improves the summer quality of our grass. And within those thatchy, stemmy bits, if we don't top them or don't eat them down, our clovers are getting shaded out in those areas too. I guess balancing that, the not-so-good stuff about post-grazing uh, topping is for sure from, from us, uh, especially that cow poo splatter everywhere, and that's really not much fun and a hell of a mess all over our gear. And of course, another key disadvantage of our post-graze topping behind the cows is, of course, the volume of cut or mown pasture, albeit poor quality, that's left lying on the ground. And I remember a, a number um, used by the late, great Colin Holmes from Massey University, and he'd always say that 
post-grazing topping could leave behind, chopped on the ground, up to four to 500 kilograms of dry matter per hectare that's been wasted uh, and left to rot. So that's a pretty profoundly large number. Hopefully post-grazed topping wouldn't leave that much behind. But we do need to acknowledge in the high-efficiency grazing systems we run here in New Zealand that post-grazed topping does, of course, uh, waste quite a bit of feed, uh, albeit that we didn't want the cows to eat it because it was poor quality. And of course, I guess the other not-so-nice thing about post-grazing topping is that if you're post-grazing topping heading into the summer months, particularly after Christmas, and hopefully you're not still having to post-graze top through early January into February, if you are in a facial eczema-prone area, now just facial eczema is sporodesmin toxicity for those of you outside of New Zealand, that dead and dying plant material that's left lying in the paddock with post-grazing topping will unfortunately contribute to more thatch on the ground. And that's a lovely, nice, warm, growing medium, if you'd like, for the Pithomyces shatarum fungus to grow and to produce spores that cause facial eczema. I guess summing up, there's no such thing as right and wrong decisions about either pre- or post-grazing topping. Some of you will do this every year. Some of you will choose to pre or post, depending on what the quality of your ryegrass is like. And indeed, for many of you listening, topping may never feature in your grazing management plans. Perhaps you're a system four or five farm where your stocking rate's quite high and you never see ryegrass um, reproductive development anyway, just because you're able to fully feed the cows on the feed pad and then uh, the cows go out and just clean out any pasture that's left. So no two farms are the same and we're not making any hard and fast recommendations. If you are looking at wondering why you get a post-peak decline, it might be historically that we look back through um, years when you have done pre- or post-topping and just see whether there's differences in years where you've done topping one year and not the other. Just good um, to perhaps um, keep a note of what you're doing with your pastures and then retrospectively, when we look at your lactation curve, we can decide whether topping helped or didn't didn't help at all. Now we're moving on to the next topic, which is probably more of a long-term view around managing for post-peak milk solids decline, and this is to do with pasture composition. In future seasons, so this is not this season we're in now because we can't necessarily immediately change your pasture composition now in October, uh, mid-spring in New Zealand, for future seasons we can start to identify longer term ways to improve pasture quality and improving pasture quality comes down to changing species of pasture plants present or even choosing different cultivars within existing pasture species such as perennial ryegrass. Let's start with the most obvious way to start to improve things for post-peak decline and the first is of course to increase the proportion of clovers in our mixed swords on our milking platforms. And to be fair, sadly, many, if not most, of our New Zealand dairy farms tend to run rather lean on the percentage of clovers in our pasture swords. In the ideal world, we'd like maybe 30 to 40% clover, notwithstanding the risk of bloat, but it's another topic another day. But to be fair, most New Zealand dairy farms, if you did actually do some botanical composition plant counts, we'd find there'd be less than 10% of our pasture mass in front of cows will be clover and the remainder will be perennial ryegrasses or short rotation ryegrasses and perhaps weeds. Certainly with encouraging more clovers, as we've already discussed, grazing management has a lot to do with it, doesn't it? You know, those slower rounds, taller pre-grazing masses do shade out our clover friends that we're trying to encourage into our sward. Now, this is true not only of our established ryegrass clover pastures, but also if you are doing regrassing as part of your um, pasture renovation approach, quite often it's simply that that first grazing after you've established your new pastures has been too late. And uh, those establishing white clover pastures, uh, the clovers miss out. And that's always why we acknowledge that it's important to get in there and have a quick nip off your new pastures um, that have been established as soon as they're no longer pulling out of the ground to let the light in and let some sunlight into our poor old clovers. They're not going to stand a chance if they've got tall ryegrass um, pasture masses hovering over the top of them. 
the other challenges for our clovers, I guess, are a, a raft of awful little critters, um, such as clover root weevil that perhaps has decimated your clovers, or indeed other pests that munch and crunch their way through our lovely clovers. Or on the other hand, perhaps our clovers don't have the necessary base fertility, the necessary soil pH that they like to grow and um, exist well. Or perhaps we've got some specific trace mineral problems, uh, such as deficiency of soil molybdenum or boron, that we do need to get these clovers performing well. But look, that's enough about clovers, but very much will leave you in the capable hands of whoever you get your agronomic advice from. But through a range of strategies, look, we've got to really love and look after our clovers because not only will having clovers coming through at the same time as your ryegrass quality is dropping away, so overall sward quality is a heap better, but of course, how about our free nitrogen uh, from our clovers once that nitrogen fixation gets up and running? Got to be good for business, particularly we're here in New Zealand, we're running under lower nitrogen caps, so we're limited on how much nitrogen we can apply to pastures and uh, genuinely the price and application to not only buy but to apply nitrogen is increasingly causing problems uh, and, and obviously dents our cash flow budgets. As well as clovers, and I guess where weed burdens permit, we can also look at uh, well herbs such as chicory, punatu chicory, or perhaps ecotane plantain. And these herbs will also contribute to overall late spring and early summer pasture quality. But yeah, yeah, the challenges with herbs, it will be a paddock to paddock or block to block difference, is of course you being able to control your unwanted weeds in your pastures with herbicides that might also take out your chicory or plantain because, of course, chicory and plantain are actually, uh, in their genetic origin, they were actually weeds until they were domesticated and turned into useful pasture plants. So, you know, we do have issues around managing uh, herbicide ideas to take out weeds, but obviously we'll take out your chicory and plantain if we're not careful. Once again, that's a topic to discuss with your local agronomist. And of course, we're not acknowledging the bonus of, of for example, ecotain plantain, is that you will get reduced nitrogen losses under your cows. So that's well worth uh, building that into your farm environment plan for sure and our future freshwater farm plans. Another longer term option to consider when improving your late spring and early summer pasture quality is, of course, the range of different ryegrass cultivars available nowadays with a range of different what we call heading dates. Now back in the day, showing my age, you know going back to the mid-1990s, we didn't have a lot of choice of ryegrasses in the market. Pretty well everything in the market were very similar as far as heading dates went. Now most of these were what we called uh, mid-season headers or heading dates or another thing to call them as day zero heading dates meaning that with our ryegrass cultivars back in the day, all of the ryegrass types would start to flower, start to go reproductive across the whole of your milking platform at the same time. Now, when we say day zero, this is usually taken in New Zealand as the 22nd of October each and every year. So with our mid-season or day zero heading ryegrasses, that meant that everything would all go uh, reproductive at the same time. And that was very challenging to try to manage your pastures for good quality when every single ryegrass plant on the platform had decided to try and go reproductive all at the same time. No wonder pastures were harder to manage back in those days and we were more likely to have uh, more severe post-peak decline with milk solids production. Now fortunately, and you've all seen the change uh, with types of cultivars available in the New Zealand and Australian marketplaces, is that we're now very spoilt for choice with perennial ryegrass heading dates and there's a heap of different ryegrasses available. Now that means when you're regrassing your areas of your milking platform, uh, you might be regrassing grass to grass or perhaps behind your summer crops, perhaps your maize paddocks you can actually choose ryegrass cultivars that head at different times. By putting different parts of your farm into paddocks with different heading dates, you can have some blocks on the farm or paddocks on the farm that head at good old day zero with some mid-heading heading dates on your ryegrasses. 
But on other paddocks or blocks around the farm, you can plant other varieties or cultivars of ryegrass that can head, you know, maybe 20 to 22 days later. So if you had expected a typical heading date is 22nd of October, that means you're getting out to 10th or 15th of November before those ones head. And in the case of some super late, ultra late ones such such as a new ryegrass cultivar Vast, we're 35 days later. So that's five weeks later than our mid-season heading grasses that you might know of, know as uh, uh, some like Nui as a day zero or mid-heading mid ryegrass uh, that, that you've probably already had something to do with. So the good stuff is with this is that as part of the farm starts to try the ryegrasses start to try to go reproductive, you've got other areas of the farm that are still lovely and leafy. So what we're doing is we're spreading risk and therefore we'll have some good quality paddocks to go to when some other paddocks are not so good quality. And this is an important strategy for managing this post-peak decline in milk solids because the whole farm isn't having um, heading ryegrasses all happening at the same time. Other helpful ways, I guess, that modern ryegrasses uh, have improved thanks to the good efforts of plant breeders over the last 30 years or so is that our plant breeders select against what we call aftermath heading. So aftermath heading, or AMH, uh, sometimes is abbreviated to, probably easier to say, isn't it? All that means is that aftermath heading is the production of seed head that ryegrasses do after their initial flush of that first ryegrass seed set that happens if we don't manage pastures well in October through to mid-November. Now, back in the 1990s and into the early 2000s, aftermath heading was appalling on the majority of ryegrasses in the marketplace, simply because back in the day we used to, well, some companies used to select for uh, ryegrass cultivars that grew the most dry matter and aftermath heading obviously uh, wasn't good quality but it certainly produced a lot of dry matter. These older ryegrasses used to continue to push up seed head every single day for the whole of the summer so you weren't only talking about increasing um, stocking pressure or, or starting the tractor and mower up through uh, October and November. In fact it became a challenge for the whole of the summer because of huge amounts of aftermath seed head production. So to sum up the point, because of a lot of advances made with ryegrass breeding nowadays, almost all ryegrass varieties have been selected for reduced aftermath heading, which means that through stocking pressure alone, we're hopefully going to be able to keep on top of the ryegrass quality, perennial ryegrasses particularly, because we've got reduced aftermath heading in the genetics. Sometimes with Italians, we'll still get more aftermath heading, although even the modern Italian ryegrasses have been selected for reduced aftermath heading, but on average, Italians will produce more aftermath seed heading than perennials. As well as that, another topic another day is for tetraploid ryegrasses. We'll come back to this topic as a standalone podcast, but tetraploids on average are tastier, like cows like to consume tetraploids more, and because of that, on average, if cows have tetraploids or diploids side by side, cows will eat slightly more of a tetraploid ryegrass than a diploid. And that tastiness certainly comes into play as a way to keep dry matter intake up when we're looking at this post-peak decline period. Now, tetraploids aren't for everyone because cows like them so much, they are potentially going to be overgrazed. So if you are uh, in an area where perhaps overgrazing is more likely, perhaps odd-shaped paddocks make pasture allocation more difficult, uh, whatever, uh, tetraploids might not be for you, but if in doubt, do ask your local friendly agronomist. We're going to leave the ryegrass discussion uh, alone now. Hopefully we've covered a bit about ryegrasses. If not, head over to the Room and Room Facebook group and just add in comments, make your own post and drop it in about you want to know more about ryegrasses. If not, we'll, we'll finish that now. And we're going to uh, wind up this podcast now uh, as we head towards the end, talking about the role for summer crops and the rate and extent of post-peak decline. Now, when we talk about post-peak decline, quite often we're talking about the crash that happens between mid-October to mid-November. And as you know, typically we're not yet onto our summer crops that early to provide extra energy and protein to cows until perhaps 
uh, early December. In the case of, of some of the early grazed crop types, such as chicory, like Punatu chicory, uh, Palaton raphnobrassica, or even leafy turnip. If you do grow leafy turnips, I know many of you wouldn't use leafy turnips because they are a shallower rooting type of plant that sometimes cows will pull out. Uh, or if you're in a drier area, maybe you don't get the regrowth off leafy turnip, and that's where Palaton raphno probably fits better. Anyway, we're starting to ramble here a bit, but... Typically, summer crops on average, particularly if you can get on to those early maturing uh, ones you can get into in early December, these will also offer benefits to slow the post-peak decline. Now, on average, compared to ryegrass-dominant, heady, poorer quality pastures, our forage crops will contain a lot more energy and protein than those hard done by summer pastures particularly when we get further north, areas of the North Island of New Zealand and especially north of Taupo, where when we get heat and humidity kicking in, our ryegrass-dominant pastures, even when you manage them magnificently, even if they're leafy, will struggle under hotter conditions uh, to maintain quality despite all your best efforts, which is really infuriating. So in those hotter areas of New Zealand, even leafy-looking nice ryegrass plants uh, can be quite high NDF and low energy. Well, I guess we'll kick off the standard question that has sort of been and gone for this year, but perhaps for your cropping ideas for next year, which is the best summer crop for my milking dairy cows? Oh, well, I usually defer this question to your local friendly agronomist, because otherwise we've got a very large discussion area beyond this particular podcast. It's kind of like, how long is a piece of string? As the expression says, here in New Zealand, we're very spoilt for choice of summer crop types to choose from. And I guess the first decision when you're looking at summer crops, firstly, is number one, do you want to harvest and store the crop, the likes of maize silage? Or number two, and I guess this fits more uh, neatly into our topic around post-peak decline in milk solids, do you want to graze your summer crop in the paddock without needing to harvest uh, and then store that feed and feed it back out again? And I guess with, with diesel prices and everything, if we can graze forage crops, what we call in situ, which just means graze them in the ground, you know, that's going to save some money, I guess, because you're not having to manually harvest those feeds. Now, coming back to these in-situ grazed ones, yeah, there's a, there's a heap of these to choose from. For example, there's the herbs, and we've already touched on chicory, but in this case we're talking about chicory not being part of a mixed pasture, but rather planted perhaps on its own, or that you have your own chicory combo with other plant types, the likes of clovers, could be red and white clover, uh, provided you look after bloat risk, another story another day. Or on the other hand, you could look at the likes of ecotane plantain, again on its own, or in the case of uh, ecotane, probably with clovers to improve the overall quality. Another topic, another day. Or the further north you go, and you know, this could be the Waikato and north uh, of, of Taupo there, we can look at some of what we call the C4 summer active plants or crop types such as millets, sorghum sudan grass or sudan sorghum hybrids, which can provide a real bulk of feed. And bulk is good, but of course quality uh, is quite variable for these C4s. For example, um, sudan grass, um, nice and short, that's going to be good quality. But if we have a crop, uh, particularly sorghum as, a, as an example, if you've got lost in that crop, you disappear into that and your cows are never seen again, clearly the quality of C4s isn't that good if we uh, don't graze it in a short, leafy, vegetative state. So C4s are useful if you're short of feed, but probably if you're looking to address a rapid post-peak decline through the summer months, you're probably better to stay with a temperate forage species, the likes of your herbs, or choosing one of the wide array of forage brassicas, such as Palaton raphnobrassica we mentioned before, or forage rape, or bulb turnips. Uh, we, well, we mentioned leafy turnips, but within the bulb turnips, you can get the earlier maturing kind of tankered types or the later globe-type turnips. Uh, and increasingly, interestingly enough, on many dairy platforms nowadays for late summer and early autumn feed, we're seeing a resurgence of a, what's a blast from the past really making me feel old again, of kale 
being grown for late summer and early autumn feed, with cows starting perhaps on bulb turnips and then moving on to kale for that late summer, early autumn period, which is being increasingly useful when it's our predictability of our autumn rains are getting less and less predictable, climate change or whatever's going on, and kale is quite a useful feed because uh, unlike the, the likes of forage, rape or turnips, uh, it won't reach maturity because it's a very late maturing plant. It'll keep growing in front of the cows. It won't go off. And obviously, on average, the brassicas won't give you that same insane bulk amounts of feed as your C4s do, your sorghums, sorghum, sedan crosses and hot environments. But I guess the trade-off with your brassicas is that whilst they'll yield less feed than your C4s, on average, their yield of energy and protein per hectare is actually greater than your poorer quality, bulkier C4 crops. If you've not done a lot of summer forage cropping and you're still thinking about which one might be the best for your herd, I know even though we've talked about energy and protein per hectare as an approach, to be honest, <laughs> as biased and focused as we here in the Room and Room podcasts are around cow nutrition, to be honest with you, it's better to often throw the question about which summer forage crop for me is to chuck it at your local talented agronomist um, to ask first up because uh, he or she will know the type of summer forage crops that will work kind of best locally for you. And because, to be honest, we could talk here about which is the best crop from an animal nutrition point of view and yet your local agronomist will say, actually, through pest pressure reasons, through weed burdens that you've got on farm at the moment, etc., actually that nutritionally desirable crop might not work so well from an agronomic point of view. As well as that, every farm in New Zealand is different from the next one, and even within a farm, there's differences between blocks and even differences between paddocks. So it's super unlikely that there'll ever be a, a one-size-fits-all recommendation for a, crop, a summer forage crop that, that fits the needs of everyone. Some of the things your agronomist will work through with you will be things like when do you need the feed? Like do you need it before Christmas to help with a post-peak decline? You know, like getting onto it in uh, early December. Or perhaps you have uh, a farm where you pick up a lot of pre-Christmas rain and it's not until later in the summer that you need feed. So like a, a summer turnip, a bulb turnip followed by kale might be better for a situation around there. It might be influenced by the timing of establishment. Uh, you know, that if you need feed that's quite early, you know, some crops will do better being planted earlier than others. Of course, how cold or warm your soil temperature is at the time that you want to plant, how summer safe or summer dry uh, your property is, although increasingly our summer safe properties are tending to be a little less summer safe than, than usual, or conversely Australia at the moment, unusually very wet conditions, so I don't know what normal is about anymore. And then from your point of view, how much crop do you need and when do you need it and for how long? Because uh, bulb turnips, for example, you might, might graze them for 40 to 50 days and it's a big bulk of feed that you graze over a short period of time compared to a lesser amount of feed eaten over a longer period of time. And finishing up around summer forage crops, I guess the other thing to acknowledge around post-peak decline is that once we get into the summer months, there's a few anti-nutritional issues we need to start thinking about with some of our summer pastures, such as for your older uh, wild type or standard endophyte pastures that contain lolotrum B and uh, ergovalin, some of uh, those issues around ryegrass staggers or indeed accentuated heat stress may contribute to the post-peak decline, uh, especially through those summer months, as well uh, animal Health challenges such as facial eczema or sporodesmin toxicity, uh, clinical and subclinical facial eczema causes liver damage, which of course reduces feed conversion efficiency for the cow, irrespective of the real risk of animal health and animal welfare concerns associated with the photosensitization effects of that. So acknowledging some of these not-so-nice things to do with summer pastures, clearly a key benefit around post-peak decline of summer forage crops is that we are removing cows from the pasture for 
part of their daily feed demands, perhaps a third of the diet, on a dry matter basis coming from crops, means reduced exposure to some of these issues like endophyte-associated issues and also facial eczema. And because we have forage crops in the system, hopefully you're not needing to graze down into the base of those pastures as low because they're getting ample amounts of feed from your crops. And things such as the Pithomyces chitarum fungus that produces sporodesmin in the spores are located at the base of the pasture. So if we graze down lower, um, we take in more spores. If we keep our post-grazing residuals higher on our pastures, because we have forage crops as part of a diet, we're not going to pick up as many spores. As well, those nasty alkaloids associated with the wild or standard type endophytes found in the older type of perennial pastures. Again, those alkaloids are in the base of the pasture. Higher post-grazing residuals, fewer spores for facial eczema, reduced intake of the anti-nutritional alkaloids in the older type of ryegrasses. So that's our journey around very much a pasture and forage crop basis to reduced post-peak decline. We can certainly cover more aspects around supplementary feeds. Uh, there's a lot of good ideas around supplementary feeds to reduce post-peak decline, particularly in your system four and fives, where we can feed grain, we can feed molasses, we can feed uh, good sources of rumen degradable protein, things like cracked peas and bits and pieces. But look, unashamedly, this was about pastures and forage crops as a topic for this podcast, at least. Post questions, happy to do a part four if we need to around post-peak decline and supplementary feeds. And of course, the other aspect around it is we're focused very much on post-peak decline with milking dairy cows. Clearly, whatever is good for our uh, reducing the extent of post-peak decline will be also good for young calves uh, that have been weaned or your mated or soon-to-be-mated 15-month-old uh, heifers through this hot period as well. The good quality feed pays benefits in terms of live weight gain for both calves and heifers. So anyway, quite a long podcast this time. It is the third in a three-part series about post-peak milk decline. You can understand now why it's usually quite a long conversation when we're looking at your lactation curve and looking for concerns around post-peak decline. And that's why there's a lot of different strategies to tackle it. So hopefully you've taken two or three bites of these three podcasts over a longer period of time because otherwise it's a bit of a long period to be sitting down or you've been driving or you've been on the tractor maybe topping pasture or you're still feeding the last of your calves or whatever you've been up to. I hope that um, listening in has been of interest to you and maybe help you pass the time a bit better on whatever you've been up to. As we mentioned earlier, any comments or tips and tricks of your own around managing post-peak decline, grazing management, because we know one size doesn't fit all, we'd certainly love to hear from you. Do come over to the Room and Room Facebook group uh, and drop your comments uh, or make a new post of your own about uh, sharing some of your information, because for sure there's no way a single podcast can cover all issues. But in, look, in the meantime, this has been Charlotte Westwood. And on behalf of myself and uh, our PGG Rights and Seeds team, hope that you have an awesome day out and about no matter what you're doing. And we'll look forward very much to you joining us again soon. Cheers. <laughs>